We're in 1 Kings chapter 8. I promise after this morning it's going to be shorter. I promise you that. Um, God is kind of picky about where he's going to live. I think most people are. You kind of get this idea of the kind of house you want to live in, where you want it to be. And we all have to compromise to a certain extent for cost and different things. But we want to make it safe and secure from all alarms. And we want it to be comfortable. And it's sort of like if you uh, ever watch Love It or List It or one of those, places, those shows on HGTV is say, list the things you need. And usually it's an open concept and we want this or that. And, and you list all these things that you really, really want in your home. And you hunt until you find that right place. And then you find a realtor, a really good realtor you want to find and say, this is what I'm looking for. And that realtor will take into consideration what you're saying and think of all the offerings he knows about and kind of filter through them and, and, and show you the ones that are kind of in line with what you want. Well, God is picky too. He's not going to just reside anywhere. He's not going to put his name just anywhere. We saw that kind of with the tabernacle. When God said, I want you to build a house for me to live in while you traipse through the wilderness, and I want to travel with you, and he was so very detailed in exactly the colors and the patterns and the decorative stuff, and, and, and the tabernacle was built. Well, God did the same thing when it comes to the temple. Not that it was his idea, but that if he's going to live here, there's certain things he expects. God chose a people. Uh, it was Israel, and, and he decided to create a people before he ever created a house. He created a people, and he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. In a dramatic way, he led them out of their dilemma in Egypt and made them his people. I want to be your God, and you be my people, and the people agreed to it. And then he chose a person, David. He had to have the right kind of heart. And while he didn't build the house, the house was his idea, and he started making preparations for it. And through Solomon, his son, he not only created this house, but he established, God established his house and would make sure that one of his offspring would be on the throne forever. And then he, and he chose a place, and it was Jerusalem. Um, and so now we have all that put together, and we're in 1 Kings chapter 8, where it says Solomon then uh, assembled all these elders and the heads of the tribes and the leaders and the father's houses, all those who are leaders, but also by extension all the people. The Levites brought a lot of the things that belonged to God. So where would those things have come from? You may remember when they attacked Jericho, they couldn't take any of the stuff. You remember this? But one of them did, and it was God's, and God didn't like it. And he kind of corrected that situation with a little bit of discipline. But all that stuff from Jericho, where did that all go? Where did all the stuff from Holy War that Samuel's fought? Samuel fought a lot of that and wouldn't let, the, wouldn't let the soldiers take the spoils of war. Those are God. Those are his. And so all that stuff, some of that stuff was probably brought into the temple. That the, He also brought the tabernacle. Bring up the Ark of the Covenant out of the city of David, which is in Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled uh, to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Athanum, which is the seventh month. They came, the priests took up the Ark, they brought the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. And the priests and Levites brought them all up. So all this stuff, it's move-in day. Move-in day. Including the Ark of the Covenant, that special presence of God. So now it's time to move it in here. And they didn't just move it in. They moved it into the most holy place, the inner place of the 
uh, temple that was built. And, 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 and all this stuff is set up and it's time, right? It's time they did this. Most gods, when they were moving into their temple, if you're talking about pagan gods, they didn't actually move in until they brought the presence of that god in their idol and they would march it in there and say, it's homecoming for Molech or it's homecoming for Dagon or whatever, and they'd march that god in there. But we don't, Israel didn't have a god in an item. But they did have where God sits when he's present there. It's the seat of God, mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark, it says, were the two tablets of the law. I thought there was more in it, didn't you? No, there's not. It's not there. It's not there. Randy's insisting on adding to the word, and I am correcting him publicly. Those other two items, anybody remember what they were? Aaron's rod and bowl of manna. There, there's an argument what happened to them. Some say they were never in it, they were beside it. Uh, Hebrews mentions it, but in this text, all that you hear that's inside of it are the two tablets of, of the covenant. That's all that's in there. And so they set it up, in there, and it's pretty important because uh, this becomes the holy place. This is where God's going to be. It's, it's just kind of a building or a house until God takes up residence through the Ark of the Covenant. So there's two things about it. It's where God will dwell, and it's in the most holy place, which most people, hardly anyone will ever go in there. It's God's kind of inner sanctum. But in that, he's protecting the covenant. These are the covenant stipulations that God has arranged with us. And so he's saying to us, uh, the most important thing is the God who's ours and the covenant that we have entered into with him. Those, those are the two most important things, and they are what make this place sacred a lot of reverence a lot of joy on this occasion thousands upon thousands of uh, sacrifices are made all along the way the bloodiness of this thing but the people are uh, excited about this uh, they are uh, overjoyed about this finally it's like God this is God's place and it was being undertaken at a very particular time it's the Feast of Booths the Feast of Booths are tabernacles, if you want to call it that. It, makes, it sounds a little easier than Booths. Booths is hard to say. And there's a couple of things you need to know about the, the Feast of Booths that makes this a perfect spot. This was a feast that uh, remembered God providing for them all the way through the wilderness, everywhere we went. That's why for a week, you left your permanent home and you lived in a, in a makeshift tent to remember the wilderness time and how God took care of you. Uh, you went on a camping trip every year. Everybody did. That's just kind of crazy to think about that. But it's, it's to make them remember that wilderness time. The harvest was finished. According to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13, it was, like, uh, was kind of like the county fair in the fall when all the harvest was now brought in, right? It's to celebrate that God has blessed them. Uh, it was to celebrate that God brought them into the land of promise and they no longer were living in these portable places. Deuteronomy chapter 12 says, when you get into that land, I'll show you the one place I want you to worship. I'm going to locate this. It's not going to be portable like a, a tabernacle anymore, the one place. And here he is telling them this. 
Some scholars will argue this, and I don't really know, I haven't really been able to track this down, but that Moses renewed the covenant with the second generation of freed Israelites during this feast. They're thinking that part, at least, of Deuteronomy was delivered on the Feast of Booths. I don't know how they prove that, but that's an interesting argument. Finally, in Deuteronomy 31, Moses said, I want you to read the law completely, every single word out loud, every seven years at the Feast of Booths. I want you to remember the covenant. I want you to read it out loud to all the people. And that would have taken some time. So this particular feast time was like the perfect time for Solomon to dedicate this temple. It's a time of celebrating what God has given them, uh, what he's blessed them with, and also a backdrop to a renewed emphasis on the covenant. God obviously approved of this move in because the cloud came. Now that cloud was no stranger to the Israelites. Not really. I don't know how many times this appeared to them. But we see in Exodus chapter 16 for the first time the cloud of God's glory comes down. Then you see them being led by a cloud all the way through the wilderness times. And then chapter 40, when they actually celebrate the tabernacle being built, God moves in with this incredible glory of the Lord being seen and this cloud coming up. And so when they put that ark in there, looks like this. When they put that ark in there, rightly placing God at the center of their lives, when they rightly recognize the covenant that guides the relationship with God, the glory of the Lord fills that temple. They cannot stay and do anything in that temple. Everybody's out and God moves in. He keeps the promise and he honors that covenant. There's a couple of things you could say about this scene that are important. The last time, this is the last time in the book of Kings that the Ark of the Covenant is ever seen or mentioned except a little bit further down in this same passage. Until, the temp, the, until this ark enters it, it's just kind of like a house. Now, not only is this called the temple, now it's called Zion. Now, it was already in Jerusalem in the south. Now it's moved into the north, and the city is enlarged to take in the temple and now it's moved up here. And I don't know if you watched that movie one time. Harrison Ford is the president. And he's, uh, he's battling it out on a plane on Air Force One. They hijack that thing. It's all messed up. And they have to get him off the plane because it's no longer able to be functional. And they put him on this, uh, this wire and they wire him up to another plane. And they have this great dramatic fight about that. And then he gets on the plane. And then all of a sudden they think they've lost the president. And then the guy says, oh, this is now not this plane. This is now Air Force One. Do you know what plane Air Force One is? It is whatever plane the President of the United States is on. Do you know what Zion is? It's where God is. It's the city that he takes his name to dwell. And so now all of a sudden, with, a, with God here in this temple, it's his official residence, I guess, you know, for the name of the Lord, and that's where it sits. It becomes Zion. Now, when we sing the song, we got a lot of songs like this, but my favorite would be Marching to Zion. Where do you think you're going? What is Zion? Heaven, where God is. It is not Jerusalem. Now, to our politicians, it is Jerusalem. 
But it's not Jerusalem, it is where God is. And in a sense, he's everywhere, there's no question about that, he's always been everywhere. But there's a special sense that he makes his name to live in a particular place. And this, the temple now is Zion, that's where Jerusalem, the city of the great king, right? So that's where it is. But God, he honors, he honors Solomon's work, he honors David's desire by actually his glory entering this temple. And it must have been amazing uh, to, to have been there and witnessed this, but it's also a reminder that that's conditional where God's glory sets. It's conditional upon us honoring the covenant. Don't think that God is going to live here and be confined to this house. He will, he will honor you and live here if you honor the covenant. But if you choose to disregard that covenant he set up he will leave and everybody says unconditional love of God that's true his love is unconditional he loves us by the virtue of making us and wanting us but that does not mean he'll accept whatever on earth we give him in order to receive his presence and to receive the saving grace of God we must honor covenant if Gary James were here about now he would feebly say it's obedience, right? And he's right. You, it's this, this, don't think that it's just like he'll take whatever we'll give him. That's what I hear in the world. That's what I'm hearing from a lot of Christians in a lot of places. He'll just accept whatever. He's just tickled to get anything from us. Hold it. There's a covenant. Stipulations that are made from God to us, things that he's done for us, but things that we do in response, and it governs our relationship. Now, how do you know this? In Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel is, in, is going to be in captivity. He's before and during the captivity. But Ezekiel mentions seeing this vision where the glory of the Lord pulls up stakes and leaves town. He sees the temple. And suddenly the glory of the Lord that filled that temple on the day Solomon moved in, uh, dedicated it, that he gets his stuff together, God packs up, and God lifts up out of the house and leaves. And now it's just a building. It's just a building, a vacant, useless building. That's what the captivity was. You guys presumed upon the relationship and assumed that I was so delighted to live with you, I'll take you any way you want to be. No, the covenant has to be honored. And if you don't honor the covenant, I am out of here. God is not one of these who's just, just, just desperate to dwell somewhere. Now, in Ezekiel, as most prophets were known to do, he also had a message of hope. So that by the end of Ezekiel, he's talking about the Lord returning. The end of the, at the end of the captivity, when the temple is rebuilt and the people move back to Jerusalem and the glory of the Lord returns to that temple. At least that's one way you can interpret that. But there's this other story. Haggai chapter 2. When's the last time anybody preached from Haggai, right? Haggai chapter 2. And the people are all there for the dedication or they're watching the temple being built. And some people have celebrated, right? This is from another book. Some people celebrating, yay, the temple's being built. But some of those old timers, do you remember how some of those old timers responded? 
They cried. Why did they cry? Well, it doesn't interpret it for you, and it could be because of all the sadness from the time they left it. But when they saw the previous glory of Solomon's temple, and they're seeing this makeshift one they're building now, it looks a little more like a shack. I remember the great temple. This. Haggai comes down and says, don't say that because the glory of this one in later days will be even better than Solomon's temple. Because what's going to come to this one is real peace. What in the world do you think he meant by that? It's never going to look as good as Solomon's, even when Herod gets a hold of it. It's never going to look as good as Solomon's. So what does he mean by the glory of this one be greater because of who's going to walk into it? There's going to be the living Son of God who's going to come into this temple and he's going to make it irrelevant because he's going to replace it. My Son is going to come into this temple and the great glory of that day will be much greater than the move-in day, even better than Solomon's. Because it will be Jesus who moves in. And then he'll render this not only he'll render this not only unnecessary, but he'll find another way to move into a movable temple. A tabernacle, more like. Isn't that what it says of Jesus, right? John chapter 1. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. That word is tabernacled. The Word became flesh. God became flesh. What God wanted to say became flesh. He dwelt among us. And when we saw Him, we saw the glory of God. Is a son of the Father full of grace and truth. That's when God's glory really came in its fullness, almost. Jesus coming, right? It's an amazing thing to think about this. That's, that's who the real glory was. As for the Ark of the Covenant, it kind of disappears from history. Here's what Jeremiah says about it. When you've multiplied and you've been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they'll no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. They shall not come to mind. They'll never be remembered. It won't be missed. It shall not be made again. There will be movies about it, but nobody's going to ever see it again, and nobody's going to need it. Because that covenant is going to be established in the hearts of people. It's going to be written in the heart. You don't need no tablet. He's going to be living in you. You become the temple. Now, I don't need no ark anymore. The covenant will still be in effect. By the way, the covenant will not change. It won't change. You still have a covenant relationship with God, but he will live in you, and you become the glory of God. And then, but then we do see it again in Revelation chapter 11. God's temple in heaven was open. The ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. And there was flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, heavy. So there it is in heaven, right? It shows up there. We will have honored that covenant. Those who are in heaven, you know who ends up in heaven? The people who honor the covenant. This is just a bunch of interesting things when you read 1 Kings 8 when God moved in. These truths are established in the Old Testament, and the New Testament really just maintains them, sustains them. To be God's people, we still have to honor the covenant. That's what provides for the relationship. When we just observe the Lord's Supper, we renewed the covenant with the Lord, remembered the stipulations, remembered the cost. 
Remember what God has done. Just like the first covenant, it was initiated by a great act of deliverance and grace. In the Old Testament, it was rescue from Egypt. In the New Testament, it is rescue from sin forever on the cross of Jesus. Old covenant was stipulated through the law in Sinai. The new covenant is stipulated within us through the Spirit and through His Word written on our hearts. In both covenants... It is to be honored by people who want to be God's people. We have the tremendous honor, church, of being God's temple. God moves in to you. And His goal is the same as it was in the Old Testament, that His glory would fill the earth. And do you know how His glory is to fill the earth? Through us. Every time you do God's will and you maintain that covenant and you march among people who don't and you demonstrate what that covenant faithfulness looks like and every time you show forth a Christ-likeness of the one who, who is your Savior, every time you show him out in the world, in your behavior, in your life, in your language, every time you do that, God's glory just trickles forth from you and when you add it to 400, 500 other people on the hill and then they go into their lives and that glory is seen, God's glory fills the earth. He doesn't need a temple he needs temples he needs his image all over the earth redeemed through the covenant what a tremendous honor what a tremendous responsibility God is still looking for places to move into he's continually trying to expand his territory one person one heart at a time But he won't just move in anywhere. He won't just take anything. He's pretty picky about where he'll dwell. He wants wants his covenant honored. The son who died for you, he has every right to expect you to agree to be shaped into his image. He does that through the waters of baptism. He continues doing that through your life to other people. God tonight is looking for vacant properties. He's looking for other places where he can move in. And I wonder, is there anybody ready to allow God in tonight? Is there anybody willing to honor the covenant, receive those blessings and honor the covenant and let God move in. It would be cool at the end of this Sunday to see the cloud of the glory of the Lord dwell among us again as he makes a little further move into the world through your life. And if you're subject to that, why delay as we stand and sing to encourage you?